This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. My name is Jared Van Hees. I'm your host. We are here to become better habitat managers. On the other line, my friend Brian Hallbly, our episode number two guest. Brian, how are you tonight, man? Doing great, Jared. How are you? Good, good. Glad to catch up with you once again. Uh, this will be your third appearance on the podcast if i can count right i'm excited to have you yeah i must not have messed up too bad as co-host last time it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah i don't run a very tight ship <laughs> obviously <laughs> <laughs> no in all seriousness man welcome back happy to have you it's hunting season now though last time it wasn't hunting season so how's it been going for you i haven't even been out yet so we don't get to hear anything from me. Yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think. I've been out, I think, three or four times, and uh, a couple times in Pennsylvania since we opened early here in the uh, unit that's close to my house. We opened September 15th, and I did get a uh, hunt on my Ohio farm on Saturday evening. Had 11 deer around me. That made it interesting trying to get out of the stand, but wow, nice to see all the habitat work paying off. Oh, my gosh. Any bucks? A couple little ones. Yep. Some of my uh, mature ones came out before dark. But uh, they're in there somewhere, and I I had a pretty flawless access. I felt pretty good about getting in and out, so I don't think I spooked anything. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I mean, it's still super early to have the mature guys coming out before, before dark. Um, 11 deer, though. Right. Congrats. Your plan was still yeah. working. 
Yeah, I'm worried. I hear guys talking about properties becoming dough factories. I'm hoping I'm not turning it into that, but uh, there's no shortage of dough, that's for sure. Are you going to try to take out a few of those? Yeah, I, I had a few of my sites on Saturday, but uh, just one real small one come in. It looked like this year's yearling, so she got a pass. Okay, yeah, very nice. No, that's – I mean, when you have the does come November, I think uh, you know everybody else knows what comes with that. You get the bucks. So I'm on that that thought. I don't know which way to go. I, I have a bunch of does every night from my trail camera that are coming in, but if I go in there and kill one now and blow the property out, will it be okay a month from now, early November? Probably. Um Right. But if I can keep more and more does coming in without even touching it, is that better? I don't know. <laughs> sure. You know, so it's kind of my dilemma in the same same boat. Yeah, but your uh, plantings are looking pretty good. A lot of that throwing growth stuff you did is looking pretty impressive. Yeah, the, the no-till? Yeah. The no-till, yeah. I, I owe everybody an update on that. Um, I haven't been out there in a couple of weeks, but I it's been about two months now. We're recording this early October. It's been about it's been about two months, so very excited to see what it looks like now. Um, judging by what I can tell from the cellular camera, it looks pretty good. But that's yeah. great. Yep. All right. Well, we believe it or not, my friend, are on episode number twenty. Can you believe that? It's fantastic. It's you got a you got a nice foundation laid and. Uh, I can see why you're doing so well. Oh, thanks, man. You're making me blush. <laughs> no, I uh, I do appreciate the kind words and you know just trying to have fun and and learn something. I just um, it's crazy to to hear all the feedback we're getting and uh, guys are happy and learning stuff and 20 episodes in. Oh my goodness. And uh, you know, yeah, and you you've got some you got some really impressive guests coming up. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. People are going uh, to be real excited to tune in here in the next couple episodes for sure. Yep, and a couple of those guests are thanks to you, my friend. So, couldn't, couldn't have done this without you. Couldn't have done this without Jesse. Couldn't have done this without our listeners. Um, you know, we're we're cranking up the downloads and, uh, you know, going to keep these episodes coming through the hunting season try to be some more hunting-based podcasts along with the habitat, you know, how's how's your hunting working with your habitat plan, you know, what's what's working, what's not, what are they hitting this time of year type stuff, so people can learn, you know, what to plant for different times of year. Um, Absolutely. I also have one already recorded uh, with Phil, one of our older guests, for some public land tips, so... Have some things in the works for everybody. Hope you're having a good time. Tonight we have Chase Burns from Dogwood Land Management coming on. Have you heard of Chase before, Brian? I'm ready. All right. You want to hold tight and I'll give him a ring. Absolutely. And welcome back. Chase, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. And Brian? All good. Rock and roll. All right, guys, we are back at the Habitat Podcast. We have Chase Burns on the line with Dogwood Land Management. How are you doing tonight, Chase? 
I'm doing really good. I appreciate it, Jared. Thanks a lot for having me on, you guys. Oh, no problem. Glad to glad to get you on. How was your uh, habitat season so far? Oh man, we kicked some butt this year. I will say that we were uh, we were really busy last year. We had a really big year with a lot of projects for clients. We picked up several new clients last year. Had some big farms under management, so they really wanted to attack them. And this year, we really didn't take on uh, too many new clients or, or whatever. We kind of got some focus with our business, so we've been really uh, hammering down on the clients that we have. We're doing more work for each of them, and we just really love that because we get to see a lot more of the transformation happening on each of those farms that we're touching. So, yeah, it, we were busy for sure, but it was fun. I like it. I like it. Before um, we dive too deep into the details here, I'd like to start this off with learning a little bit about our guests. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts. <clears throat> Excuse me. So why don't you tell us who is Chase Burns, where you're from, how long you've been doing habitat work, hunting, etc. Yeah. Go yep. ahead. Sure. So where I'm from, I guess, uh, it was born out in south central Iowa, Davis County, Iowa, uh, by Bloomfield, and uh, absolutely loved it out there. It's really pretty country, um, just kind of rolling, and a lot of really good people out there, but my family just didn't stay put in any one place too long when I was growing up, so, you know, we still have uh, some good friends out there, but we hopped around a lot, and I ended up in uh, different parts of Illinois, was out in Indiana for quite a few years, and then back here in Illinois. Um, so I guess if you're asking me where I was from, I guess I would say I'm a Midwest boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've been around. Yeah, yeah, we, we hopped around. We lived in uh, 16 houses, I think, by the time I was 14 years old. But, but finally wow. did stay put. And, uh, you know, so uh, most of my, let's say, I finished high school uh, kind of really close, actually, to where I live now. And um, then from uh, from high school, uh, went down to Southern Illinois University and studied wildlife biology down there and thought, you know, I'd probably move out west or something just because I romanticized about the Rocky Mountains and all that stuff and uh, moved back here right out of college and got married and found lots of good work to do and just stayed busy. And next thing you know, you know, it's I don't even want to tell you how much longer and I'm still happy to call this home. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I live in Mercer County, Illinois. Um, we're, which basically puts us like midway between where the Quad Cities are uh, and Peoria, Illinois. So um, just kind of west of the I-74 corridor, and Mercer bumps up to the Mississippi River over on the west side, but I'm all the way in the southeast corner of it, close to Knox and Henry, Warren area, if anybody knows where that's at. We've got some really good deer hunting around in this area, but uh, it's also big farm country. So, you know, we're not... We're not in the hills and hollers, so to speak, like uh, like the guys down in Pike and Adams and Brown County. But up here, uh, you know, we've got a fair mix of habitat, but predominantly row crop farmland. So, you know, what farmland or what hunting ground there is is pretty well guarded, and, and most, of it, most of it's got somebody staking claim to it and, and readily hunting it. But, yep, I, I love it here. I mean, that's uh, that's, you know, that's what I call home, and there's a reason I stuck around and, and still really, really enjoy this part of the country. Well, it sounds like a, a beautiful place to live. I'll actually be down a little bit south of you this December for a muscle loader hunt down by uh, is it Chatham. Yeah. Where are you going? Is that how you say it? Chatham? Chatham. Chatham. Yep, I'm obviously yeah. not from there. 
Well, we got tons of those cities that nobody from outside the area can pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> we got a town right next to me called Rio, R I O, and everybody from out of the area obviously reads the sign and calls it Rio. Yeah, I'm yeah. guilty of that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you know that's uh, it looks like beautiful country. I know there's good deer down your way. Um, yeah, for sure. And a, a lot of farm ground. Um, so, what do you do for work? So uh, I'm fully self-employed, have been for several years now, um, and uh, basically I have two sides to, to my life, two businesses that I run um, that, that put food on the table and let me do what I do, and dogwood land management obviously is one of them, that's what we're talking about, and the two businesses really go hand in hand. The other business is land sales. Uh, I'm a licensed managing broker and auctioneer, and I sell mostly uh, farmland, hunting land, and homes on rural acreage. I mean, I can sell real estate anywhere. I just kind of choose to stay out of town. But uh, that's, you know, I love land. I love working with real estate, and I love working with people. So that job kind of lets me do all of that. And, you know, when times are are good, it can be a lucrative business. But um, on the days that I'm not in the office, I'm running the crew and doing habitat projects with dogwood. So, you know, when, when we have some really good team members on staff, it uh, lets me be a little bit freer to spend the morning in the office and do book work, do office work, do real estate. And, you know, and then I can be out in the field uh, when I'm not busy with that stuff and, you know, running equipment or just, you know, uh, monitoring what the crews are doing and just keeping TSI work going or just checking quality on what's been done and that sort of stuff. So. Nice. So when you say crews, yeah. um, explain how many you got a couple crews that, that help you out with the dogwood or so we, how does that we work? divide we divide and conquer. Um and everybody asks that, like, well how many guys do you employ? And we're like, you know, sometimes none. <laughs> <laughs> and some and sometimes, you know, we've got, you know, uh eight or ten guys that are, are split out in different areas working on different projects. So um you know, basically, we pick up, we have a number of guys that have day jobs, so to speak, or, you know, might work three or four days a week, uh, you know, and have flexible schedules and that sort of thing where they're, you know, four on, three off or whatever. And so they like doing this type of work. Um, and, you know, and they're part timers, you know, weekend warriors, I guess if you want to call them that. But, uh, and we're glad to have those guys. You know, they work hard, they love it. Um, but, it isn't for everybody. Like not everybody wants to do that type of work and do it 40 plus hours a week and, because they could get burnt out on it. You know, right. if you're, if you do it just a couple days a week, it's still fun. <laughs> yeah, then, for sure. You know, if, if you did it every day as a living, you know, it can wear you out and, and uh, some guys then it, it burns them out and they don't, they don't enjoy it as much anymore. But you know, we've been, we've been really blessed to have some uh, excellent employees, people that we just have really enjoyed really have a passion for it. Uh, that's really what we look for more than anything when we're employing people. And, you know, like I said, going forward, I think we'll have more steady full-time year-round employees. Um, you know, but the last two or three years, we've had a lot of growth with Dogwood, but we always run into the thing that when it comes this time of year and we hit hunting season, uh, demand for our services really wanes a lot. You know, and that's that's to be expected because we can't really be in there and disturbing the properties that we manage during the middle of the hunting season. You know, so our, we kind of throttle things way back, and we'll just be then kind of doing some uh, ongoing maintenance stuff. You know, we can install 
gated entrances and kind of do perimeter uh, work and, and spreading rock or doing, you know, clearing some areas and stuff for like future building sites or, you know, site prep stuff for things like that. But the bulk of our work and the bulk of the time where we really need a lot of bodies on the ground happens from about the 1st of February through the end of September. Okay. And so. you mentioned finding people who are passionate about about this to help you. Um, how did you become yeah. so passionate about habitat work in the first place? Oh, man. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, for me, I suppose it's just lifelong uh, interest. You know, there was no, I can't ever remember a time when I wasn't just fascinated by what a field of prairie grasses look like or um, learning, you know, what kind of trees or plants that deer like to eat. It, it was just um, the, as far back as I can remember, I was interested in that stuff, which is why when I went to college, I kind of had an idealistic view, I suppose, like most dumb co- high school kids going into college have, you know, of what they what they want to go study or what kind of career they're going to have. And all I really knew was I wasn't sure that I wasn't going to make any money, um, you know, really working in that field. But I didn't care about money, obviously, at that point in time. Not many kids do. Right. Um, But really what what meant something to me was, okay, if I'm going to finish college, I better study something that I'm really interested in because I can do really well if it's something that interests me. And if if it doesn't interest me, you're not going to have my full attention. I'm probably not going to perform very well. So that was when I was going to college, that was a major decision. Is You know, okay, do I study something that I think is going to have a really broad career field and lots and lots of opportunities out there for me so I can make a lot of money? That's probably a smart thing to do, right? <laughs> but I just kind of, I just knew, you know, hey, this is really the one thing that I'm super passionate about. And I'm that guy that believes, you know, if you follow your passion, success will follow at some point on some level you'll make it, you know? Amen. So, um, sure. so that's what we did. And, um, you know, it, it's just, even when I was young, when I was in high school, I spent a lot of time, uh, helping some other guys in the area, neighbors and, and so on, landowners, you know, that, um, you know, when they got ready in the spring to burn some CRP fields and stuff, I was right there helping them. Um, you know, I planted a lot of trees got signed up in one of these programs where, we could get access to a lot of free hardwood seedlings and anywhere that some landowner would let me go plant some in the spring, I'd go plant them. And I'm glad I did that stuff back then. I didn't get paid for it. I didn't care. It was like, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to get my hands dirty and change, change the environment. Change, you know, that's sounds maybe a little uh, hippie ish, but <laughs> it was like the, the mindset I was in was that like, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I want to be able to take my children back there and show them, you know, I planted all those trees. And I'll tell you what, man, I'm 35 now and I've got two little boys and I've done that. I've taken them back to places and, and we drive down the road and drive past the field. And they just think that's cool. And I think it's, I mean, it's just pretty special. Super so. cool. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Chase, you mentioned uh, comprehensive property management. Could you explain a little bit of that? That that means? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So that's pretty much what, uh, in a nutshell, what Dogwood specializes in. Um, You know, when we were first starting the business up, um, it kind of spawned from 
some of the land sale stuff. You, you're going through a land sale process and, you know, spending a lot of time with the client, the buyer who's looking to purchase a hunting property or whatever. You build that trust relationship with them. They, they you ask lots of questions and just through natural discussion, you're figuring out, they're figuring out that you really seem to know a lot about these topics and things like that. So as soon as they would purchase a track, you know, the guy would say, ah, oh, I really need to find somebody to say, help me get this forest management plan written and implement it. Uh, I need somebody that, you know, can, I need access uh, to this back part of the farm. You know, we need to get a crossing in here. Do you know any local contractors or anything that can do that for me? So I just kind of, the need was already there and I just naturally became the guy that started filling those needs. And, you know, and so that's eventually, uh, you know, after six months or a year, the workload just kept picking up and picking up. It was like, okay, we got to legitimize this business. And, uh, and dogwood was born. But that's not an easy business to be in. And if anybody's listening to this that's thinking about starting their own habitat business at some point in time, um, if they're thinking, you know, I'd really, I just would love to quit my day job and just, you know, operate a skid steer and, and, you know, I can, I got a tractor and a steeder and I can plant food plots and I'll do that stuff for people. It is going to be super, super hard for anybody to do that and be profitable um doing it right off the bat and, and especially because you're going to be bouncing around from one farm to the you're going to be over there to mow fire bricks for that guy in the morning and then in the afternoon you're going to have to go 35 miles down the road to go plant a food plot and then the next day you're going to be loading up different equipment on your trailer and hauling it an hour and 20 minutes south to go you know um skid some logs out of a field or something so you can prep it for warm season grass seeding it's like logistically it is so challenging to do that and to still give your customer a competitive number that they're satisfied with and come out ahead. So really that's not a great business model. And it didn't take us long to figure that out. It was like, you know, doing an odd job here and there and like those kind of a la carte um, yeah. habitat jobs. They're fun. And sometimes you'll really please a client and sometimes, you know, you'll, you're, your ability to do uh, work up to their expectation is just not going to happen. You know, they were expecting some miracle when they called you in to come in and uh, spray and fill and plant a food plot all in one day about four weeks after when it should have been planted and nobody did a soil test. <laughs> You're, the results are not going to be what they want them to be, you know. And, and right. so, anyway, those – those types of jobs are just super, super challenging. So it took us a while, but we st- we slowly uh, networked, and we ended up coming into some of these clients that were really good to work for. Um, they had larger recreational-type properties that they had high expectations for, they had high goals for, and they wanted a plan. And, and so that's what we started with, which is always the first thing you should start with. Before you start doing habitat work, you better have a plan. Don't just think, you know, I want a food plot here. I want it. Uh, I think it'd be great if I planted some trees over there. Um, maybe we'll put some apple trees in the end of this field. If you're just, like, these ideas just pop into your head and you're running out there and sticking stuff in, um, you're shooting in the dark. Like, you really don't. You If you don't start out with a habitat design and really know how you expect the wildlife to use the property and kind of have, uh, a goal in mind and a reason behind every habitat attribute that you're you're, you're going to spend a lot of wheels and you're going to you're going to do a lot of things that probably need undone later. So when we finally 
got married up with some of the clients that, that brought us in early on and said, hey, look, um, I'm super excited about this property. I want to invest in it, but I need a plan, and then I want uh, you know you guys to kind of help me put a schedule to that and a budget like annually to that, and we'll just go after it. So that's what we started doing, and one thing leads to another, you know, and you get, get a couple of those guys, um, and you start the process, you do the management plan, and then you kind of lay out the priorities and say, hey, look, here's what I would do first because it's going to take longer for your apple trees to start bearing fruit, so let's not delay any longer and get those in the ground. And the season's right, we'll put them in. Um, you know, and, and then uh, prairie grasses, you know you're going to have about three years' worth before there's anything worth getting excited about, so you're going to have the first, second, and third year, the sleep, creep, leap. So don't wait three years and think we're going to put those in and have fantastic bedding because that takes time to develop. And then the TSI work, you know, you should always be moving through the property and doing those incrementally in phases. And and so, anyway, we would lay all that stuff out and schedule and then, you know, sign contracts. And that's basically how we found our specialty was uh, our business model revolves around doing comprehensive property management for those types of landowners. And, you know, we're, we're very blessed to have synced up with some of those uh, landowners who trust us to do that, and we really enjoy getting to spend so much time on one property that we get to see the evolution of it, you know, not not just like popping in there and cutting some trees and then not ever making it back to that property again, but, you know, we kind of sure. develop a bond and a love relationship with that particular farm just like the landowner does, and it's exciting to, to get to do that. Well, I have enough trouble keeping up with my personal farm, and I've got a few friends that I will uh, take my tractor to their place, or they'll rent something, and I'll help them out. So I, mm-hmm. I got all the respect in the world for you. I, I, I can appreciate what you're saying about trying to scale that to a business, and I just, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, it's, but, uh, it's an, it's a real, real challenge, and it's, it, and I'm not even honestly sure it's a battle that can really be well won. Um, but we've, you know, I, we get a lot of messages and stuff from guys all over the country that, that maybe do the weekend warrior thing. They have a little bit of equipment and, you know, guy down the road wants them to do a little bit of plotting or do this and that for me. You know, we always, we offer them the best advice we can, but it's, uh, it's usually not what they want to hear. <laughs> right. It's not, right. It's not because, you know, we're trying to talk them out of doing it, man. It's like kudos. Anybody that has that passion for land management and wants to make better habitat. And, you know, has the interest in mostly those guys are generally they're okay with not really making a bunch of money doing it. They just really have the passion for it. They want to go out and do more of it than they have the land themselves to work on, most of them. And they're just like, you know, if I could get paid a little bit to do this at the same time, yeah, that's awesome. Except that there's so much liability involved with it that you really can't do that without a legitimate business and insurance to protect you. And, right, and that's right. just crazy expensive. So you kind of you have to approach it from the mindset that the business has to be profitable or it's not viable and it's just dangerous, to be honest. So, um, you know, anyway, enough on that, I think. But uh, <laughs> it's, sure. it's, uh, it's something being able to, to manage properties comprehensively, not just, you know, uh, is something that really appeals to us because it's, it helps us be prosperous in business. But. We can be so much more efficient, and we can provide so much more value to those landowners when we're doing that. 
because we're already on the property. I mean, like imagine if you got to hop around, like I said, two, three different landowners and five different farms on the same week or whatever to do work. You have so much time lost and just loading stuff, hauling stuff around, something breaks and you got to, you know, you got to shift gears. When we're on one farm, we can, you know, okay, we got to go there and we got to spray this field. That's going to take us like three hours. Well, we're not just going there and then driving an hour back home and then trying to get something else accomplished to be productive the rest of the day. It's like, we'll go over there and we'll spray that field for a couple hours in the morning and we'll take the chainsaws and everything else with us because when we get done with that, we're moving on and we're kicking out some work on, you know what I mean? You can always put in a full day doing something while you're there. And, you know, so you don't, you don't have all the extra trip charges, mileage or whatever and all that stuff too for your landowners to absorb. But, um, right. Uh, it, walk walk us through um, where you start. How, how do you implement on these properties when you're starting with the blank slate? Give us an idea of how you approach that. Yeah, so so most of the farms in this area are a decent mix. Let's say, you know, somewhere in the uh, 40, 60 to 60, 40 mix, timber versus tillable ground. And, you know, so uh, – the main thing that we start out with, and, and we're very focused on this, and it doesn't take any of our, our consultation clients long or anybody that we're – if we're on a farm visiting with a landowner, they figure it out pretty fast that our focus is on managing native habitat. We're, we're very big proponents of managing for native species, native ecotypes, developing things, basically returning or restoring uh, habitat to how it would have looked as much as possible pre-settlement. And, you know, and so when we go onto a farm and you're looking at, let's say, 40% of the acres, if it's, it, say it's a 600, let's just call it a, a whole section, so 640. And, you know, maybe there's 240 on it that's tillable, 400 of it's timber, you know, brushy type cover. The first thing we're going to do is assess the quality of the timber. And guys are always like, well, I, I wanted to start with food plots. <laughs> no, no, we're not starting with food plots. Because it, food plots are icing on the cake, and we start with the meat and potatoes of the meal, which is the native Native-brow. habitat. Right. You need to, you know. Oh, that's all they see on TV is food plots. That's exactly right. Plots. That's exactly right. It, it's, the, it's the antidote, man. It's the quick fix. It's the magic bullet. And so as soon as somebody buys a farm, that's the first thing they think, you know, that's, that's what they want to figure out is where the food plots are going. And I'm looking at it like, well, let's figure out first if you need food plots. I mean, food plots are fun, and you can benefit from them from a hunting standpoint. But does your habitat, you need it, you know, and it, because I'm, any habitat, any farm can pretty much benefit from it. But if you don't need it, you need to focus on what you need first. And in a lot of cases, uh, the the forest has been so poorly managed that it's nowhere near expressing the potential that it should have, you know. So that's really right. the first place we're going to typically look is unless it's a very low percentage of the farm that's timber, we're going to look at the timber first because that's where the deer hide, that's where they bed, that's where they get the bulk of their forage because Deer do not want to expose themselves and sacrifice security by going out into open fields and feeding. They do it generally nocturnally, um, you know, and, and, and when we really create an inviting and secure environment, yeah, we can entice them to come out into open food plots loaded with nutritious forage and eat in food plots in daylight, but that's not that's not really natural. <laughs> 
They want to evade right. predators. Right. They want to stay in security cover, and they want to have all everything they need provided to them in there. So, uh, you know, poorly managed forage or forest might only be producing, you know, 100 to 200 pounds of forage per acre per year. And a well-managed body of timber, we might produce 900 or upwards of 1,000 pounds of forage per acre per year. And in your best quality food plots, you're probably going to grow somewhere in the 2,000, 2,500 pounds of forage. So, you know, if we manage two and a half acres, two, two and a half acres of timber properly, we go in there and do the work one time and selectively remove or thin the right species, um, keep the quality stuff, but let in a lot of sunlight and, and spray or cut the invasive species in the understory. We're just going to unleash that timber where within the first couple of years it will regenerate and produce this flush of growth, have so much forage in there. We're producing basically as much forage in two acres of timber as we could in one acre of high quality food plot. And that food plot, you got to spray it, you got to seed it, you got to fertilize it, a lot of diesel fuel, a lot of your time every single oh, yeah. year. It's, it's expensive. And, you know, and, and it does have its place, but that is why. Managing your timber always should be first priority, and then getting to the the food plots on down the line when you figure out how much need you actually have for them. So you know how much how many acres you need to be putting in. Chase, I have a quick question on that. When when you mentioned the amount of tonnage of browse per acre, I've always wondered how do you measure that, or how do you <laughs> a, approximate that to to the numbers yeah. you use? I know it's not exact, but I've always wonder yep. maybe a stupid question but how do you know no, that no, no. Or, or have an idea yeah so the, there's thankfully we've got a couple of uh, uh universities and some really gifted super knowledgeable professors in the deer management world down in the, the southern states georgia and tennessee most specifically and those guys um have had a lot of grad students and a lot of hours out working on thesis or working on research projects where they do a lot of uh exclusion cages they'll go you know and have controls and they'll have um experimental management zones and they go in and and apply certain management practices in each section of you know same body of timber and and then use exclusion cages to uh measure how much what the volume of that herbaceous growth that's coming up in each of those sections so in the piece that's not managed at all you know in fully closed canopy and the deer are just uh, hammering the ground level forage and won't allow any regen and stuff like that, you know, you're going to then measure uh, basically on the square footage and then you just extrapolate and, you know, gotcha. multiply okay. it out to see roughly what that would equate to on an acre basis. But. All right. No, that answers yep. my question. Thanks. Um, yeah. So once you go through the, the timber side of things with a customer, and I know that's not a very quick or simple fix, but once you're you're through that, Tell me about maybe an orchard establishment or, or something else that you might add in uh, besides the food plot. Yeah, so orchards are fun, and and they're mega, mega magnets. I mean, you, you can draw deer in from a long distance with ripe apples. Um, but, you know, they would still come further down the line after the other native ecotypes. So kind of spent quite a bit of time dwelling on timber, and that's because we spend a lot of time doing that type of work. But... Um, other native ecotypes would be something like uh, prairie or old field type habitat um, and edge. And those are still going to be more important than something like a fruit orchard. Okay. The, the reason is, so like 
soft mass or fruit orchards, you know, let's say persimmons, pears, apples, crab apples, things like that. Those are phenomenal additions to any well-rounded uh, wildlife farm. But there's very little nutrition uh, or nutritious value to apples. I mean, they're candy, you know, and, and deer have sweet tooth just like people do. So you can really draw some deer in, and it's a lot of fun to see the deer coming in to hit that orchard. It's a perennial food plot. It's highly attractive. They're fun to hunt on or around. Um, but they don't do much as far as, like, actually supporting your herd or providing good uh, herd health nutrition. So that's why, you know, still, again, I would say that falls into the dessert category instead of, like, the meat and potatoes of the meal. Okay. Um, but, you know, with with uh, with timber management and edge and old field type habitat, the biggest thing that you're producing through the, the growing season when everything is green is your native forbs. That's what is the bulk of the deer's diet, you know, from, from first green up in sometime in, you know, late April or whatever, all the way through mid part of September when things start to dry down and get tough and full of lignin. Those plants, you know, any of your, let's say, broadleaf weeds is what farmers would call them, right? You know, so your your uh, nettles and, uh, you know, common ragweed and giant ragweed and just, there's, you know, I don't, I know what they are here in the Midwest and you guys probably know what most of them are, you know, and, and your listeners probably know a lot of them like up in the UP or up in, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania and your guys' area, but it, it's the same, same general plant type, let's say, your your, uh, 6 to 24-inch tall broadleaf-type plants that put out a lot of herbaceous growth, those are what a deer uh, has, that's what their digestive system has developed to live on, and they do it very well. They get a lot of good nutrition out of those plants, and they don't cost a thing. The seed is abundant. All you have to do is is manipulate the ground conditions and let in enough sunlight that they just take off and go. Um, and then in the fall and winter, when all those plants start to get really tough, there's that natural transition that happens in a deer's rumen. They've got to repopulate their gut with a totally different colony of bacteria. So they flush out one colony, and over like a 7- to 10-day period, they start to uh, introduce woody stem stuff, uh, tree bark and terminal buds of shrubs and trees, and starches. So all of your grains, corn, where they can find it, and acorns which would obviously be more native. So they uh, their diet shifts to that stuff. And through the wintertime, 80-plus percent of deer's diet naturally would be woody-stemmed browse, like you mentioned earlier. Is the timber management, everybody says browse. It's like, well, in the summertime, it's forage. You know, it's those okay. leafy greens. And then in the wintertime, it's browse. You know, a browse sure. is the term actually referring to, like, the, the woody stem terminal uh, buds, I didn't know tips that. of tree seedlings and shrubs and tree bark and things like that. So um, that's what they, you know, that's what their digestive system is set up to, to subsist on, I guess, in the wintertime. So, um, yeah, and I've heard that uh, when they get on that woody browse, sometimes those apples will help their digestion with the woody browse times too. So having, I think having an orchard along that would help. It's, it's certainly going to help draw the deer in, um, and it, diversity is king, both in habitat and in diet. Deer are 
and sometimes people people use the term browse so much when they're talking about beer that people get confused about how they're actually using it or what it means. Um, people have often called beer browsers because they're, you know, like a, a cattle, they're grazers. You know, they walk around out in the open pasture and they just chomp down on grass and load up a giant gut full of grass. Well, deer are athletic <coughs> animals, and they don't have the luxury of just being able to just waltz around and, and not be afraid of predators. So they got to be nimble, quick, agile, all that. So they have to eat more nutritious plants than grass. So right. uh, their uh, their diet is totally different. And uh, but they're walking around eating. 50 different types of plants if they can get it. You know, even in the first, let's say, first half of the deer season, when you shoot a deer this fall, if you, once you get, you know, the, the guy, everything pulled out and away from, away from the meat, so you don't spoil it, you know, maybe you did this once or twice when you were a kid, but now I'll bet you, you keep your knife well away from the room and you try not to bust that gut open so you don't have to smell or see what's All in right. there. Oh, yeah. But it, if we did that and you would slice that open to actually see what's in there, a lot of times it's hard to identify those plants, but if you if you took them out, and I'm not telling you to do this because your wife would kill you, but if you took if you took a <laughs> cup of that stuff out and you put it in a colander and rinsed it out in your sink, and then you know use some tweezers or something and pull out the different types of leaves and plants that are in there, you'd, at any given time you'd probably find a minimum ten and probably upwards of twenty different types of plants that are in a deer's intestinal system or in his in his gut. But honey, he said I could do it. He told me. Don't <laughs> you dare! Don't you dare tell her that. So, but you know, the, the point is though that, and that stuff doesn't take that long to break down. You know, so that just gives you some idea the diversity of their diet, and and that's why you know people are like, well, you know, I, I've got this food plot that they're eating in the summer, and I'm planting soybeans for the winter. They got tons of food to eat. If if, if you're counting on soybeans to carry your deer. It, they might survive, but they are not going to be healthy, even though that that is one of the most nutritious plants you can put out there for deer, and it's fantastic at helping them hold body weight and, you know, give them everything they need almost to get through the winter. But a deer's diet doesn't work like that. Like, they they do not want to just eat one type of plant. So in those properties that we've come on that somebody didn't manage or touch the habitat and the timber just is like a park you know you can see 150 yards through it and uh it's zero degrees out and they've planted a six acre soybean plot and they've got 50 plus deer that are bedding in that 100 yards outside edge of the timber so that they can minimize the number of calories they have to burn just getting back to cover and then walking out there to feed in the food plot and then back to cover and walking back out there that they will absolutely annihilate all of the native shrubs or trees, that's what creates that browse line, you know, all the way along the edge of the timber. And and guys don't even realize they're doing that. And they're like, well, I have all these soybeans. They're still eating soybeans. It's like that, a deer does not want to just live on one plant. They can't, you know. Sure. So they're going to eat the heck out of everything else that's around them like a goat just to, you know, add that diversity to the diet and get the rest of the minerals and the rest of everything else they need. And they help in digestion. So... Um, the diversity is huge with, with the deer's diet and managing your natives is by far the best way to provide that for them. Okay. So once you get to that point where you've got your timber management where you want it and you want to start adding orchards, do you prefer to add like a block orchard or do you like to sweeten up other openings like food plots with a couple accessory trees or, or is it situational? Yeah, that's a good question. That is situational. 
Um, so we've done both. Um, we have a lot of times where we have like a big destination food plot. Um, and a destination food plot means it's one that's primarily for nutrition, uh, where we're a bigger property and we're holding a lot of deer on it in the wintertime because we've, because we've manipulated the timber and we've created the best quality cover, uh, security cover in the area. We're going to recruit a lot of deer from the surrounding farms and surrounding area in that late season, especially. And they're going to move in there. And that's when you really, that's, and I don't, I don't often say that you need a food plot, but that's, those are the situations where you need that food plot. And that, that large destination food plot, uh, is going to supplement those extra deer, your, your, let's say artificially inflated carrying capacity. It's going to help you carry those through the winter so that they don't just absolutely destroy your native regeneration and eat up everything that you've got growing in the timber. They're filling up some of their belly with what you're providing in that destination food plot. Those destination food plots that are anywhere from, let's say, four to 10 acres, uh, if you've got the extra acreage, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll try to break that up into at least two different seasons worth of annual food plots. Uh, so that we've got food on the table starting at first green up in the spring and then a different type of forage that gets them through the fall and then something like standing corn or beans that is going to be there and ready for them when the conditions get super harsh and there's a foot of snow on the ground that they still need that food to be available to them. But a food plot like that can really be kind of made rounded if we uh, if we added an acre or a half an acre of uh, soft mass to it. And that's, you know, that's just, uh, we'll, when we do something like that, it might be anywhere from 10 trees to upwards of 40 or so. And that's wow. a lot. I mean, yeah. 40, 40 apple trees in one orchard. Is, I mean, Trying you're going to have a lot. Trees in production. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, but it, it is a really cool thing to see. Um, and, and they definitely have their place. But I'd say on average, we're probably looking at more like, uh, eight to maybe 16, 20 trees, something like that. That's going to be okay. more typical. And we'll, we'll usually do them on like 25 foot spacings. Uh, right. And, you know, and we're usually planting, uh, semi dwarf trees. So they're only going to get about 20 feet tall. Um, and, you know, maybe 20, 24 feet wide or something. And, you know, those trees, I would say the biggest thing I can tell people about planting a uh, fruit orchard is if that's something uh, that you want to add to your hunting property, do it in phases uh, and whatever you're planning on spending. Like if you're, let's just say, you know, your average working class guy and you're hunting your grand folks' farm or you maybe got your own piece of ground that's, you know, nothing huge, but uh, it's affordable to you, that sort of thing. And you want to add something like that to it. Don't spend your entire year's budget of habitat development work on putting in an orchard in one year you, you, because if you do something like that and then you get hit with a bad drought, you're going to lose half or more of that, uh, of the trees that you planted anyway. So when you spread it out over time, you kind of hedge your bets for one. That's a great so, you, you know, so if, you, yeah. if your goal is to get to have 12 trees, plant three or four this year, three or four next year, and three or four the year after that. And, uh, whatever you're planning on spending that year, say it's 500 bucks that you've got, you're going to spend on it. I would say spend money on bigger, better quality trees. Don't buy Absolutely. the little jiffy pot, uh, right. 18 inch. I mean, 
and that's for the guys who are only planting one small orchard. I, I, my advice to you is to spend the money and buy a bigger, uh, more established, hardier tree. Uh, you're going to have a much higher chance of survival. If you're only planting three or four trees, you really don't want to lose one. You know, if you were sure. planting 50, sure, you know, there's a lot of economy that can be bought in, in buying younger trees and there's power in numbers. But with fewer trees, yeah, but plant whatever you spend on those trees, spend 35 40 $50 per tree or something on better quality trees. Plan on spending at least that much per tree to protect them. Um, you know, and this is a, this, <laughs> this is a, a word from experience. I did that <laughs> when, when I first bought a farm. I was so gung-ho about getting an apple orchard put in it. I hadn't done anything else on the farm yet, and I was, like, dead set on – I'm going to – I spent, like, more than I could afford uh, on fruit trees and asked me how many of those are still alive today, you know, not one. <laughs> uh, so because I, I didn't properly protect them. You know, I, I, I knew what I wanted, but I didn't understand everything that went into it, how to how to prepare it and do it right. You want to soil test and amend the soil in the area that you're going to plant the tree. It just makes sense. You do it for a food plot. Why wouldn't you do it for a fruit tree that's going to be there hopefully for your lifetime? Wow. You know, so do it, do it once. And and the other thing is once you put that tree in the ground, you want to protect the area around it. The biggest the the biggest enemy of your newly planted fruit tree is grass competition because it sucks up all the moisture out of the ground. So you want to put down some tie par or landscape fabric or cardboard even or something around the tree in, you know, four or five, six foot diameter circle. And we always use rock on it uh, instead of mulch. We don't use tree bark mulch on fruit trees. So we usually either use like pea gravel or CA6, you know, crushed limestone. Yeah, what are you using in dry that? I saw that on your video so, on Facebook. Why do you do that? I thought it was yeah. to hold moisture with the mulch, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, rock will do the same thing. Okay. So we think, okay, mulch absorbs moisture, which is why when you pick up, you know, you pick up mulch in your hand, it might still feel damp or whatever, yeah. and you pick up rocks and it feels dry. Well, all it's doing is it's shading the ground. It's the okay. ground underneath it that we really want to hold the moisture. The, that's actually the problem with mulch, wood mulch, is that it holds the moisture and it molds and it mildews. Yeah. And mold and mildew are just really, really bad things for fruit trees. So, you know, you're basically inviting an environment of rot right around the base of your the trunk of your new fruit tree when you use mulch. And when you use rock, you know, it doesn't give you that problem. The other, the other thing that mulch, wood mulch does is it invites rodents to nest in it in the winter. Uh, bulls, shrews, mice, they, they tunnel under it, they build their nests in it and that kind of stuff. And rock, they won't do that. And they, won't, they don't even want to run across the circle of rock because it exposes them, you know, to aerial predators or whatever. So... Um, and oh, then, man, Chase, where were you like 15 trees ago? <laughs> <laughs> They're not eating up yet, man. It's not too late. Go, go protect them. But yeah. I've already learned those lessons that Jared hasn't learned yet. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I use the mulch. I, I have the fencing. I have the landscape fabric. I have all that. But I use regular mulch for sure. And yeah. uh, and fencing is fencing is critical too, you know, absolutely. Um Everybody's got their own technique for doing fencing around tree trees. We usually roll it out in about a 17-foot length. Um, and wow. That sounds pretty precise, doesn't it? But yeah, you know, <laughs> divide yeah. that by a lot more than I use. Yeah, so we'll roll. We'll buy uh, six-foot tall welded wire. Like you can use either the stuff that you use, like concrete reinforcing, or just you know, uh, run-of-the-mill like some people would call it poultry wire or something. But uh, like the two-by-four grid welded wire. 
we'll use that kind of stuff. Roll it out in 17 foot, and then when you wire the ends together and make it a perfect circle, it's a six foot diameter. So, you know, that's what put it, and that way you got a three foot buffer on each side of the trunk of the tree. It lets the tree have some growth, but most of it you want to go vertical and then out over the top of that six foot. Because the idea is we're trying to get that deer or that get that tree to grow up and above the deer's feeding zone so that they're not browsing heavily and eating up all the branches off of it. But, you know, early on, you, any growth is good growth while you kind of get past that transplant shock and get the tree established. So, um, so we want to give the, the cage just enough room around that tree that it can put on some branches, put on a good amount of foliage, and that way it has some good growth until it gets established without the deer nipping off every branch and leaf that sticks out through the wire. Okay, and so. when would that be? When is the transplant shock over with? Like year two? Or? It's a, yeah, usually uh, okay. year two, year three for sure, but it just depends on how much moisture you get or if you're able to water them at all. So if you stick them out there in an average year and you never water the tree, it's just nature runs its course, yeah, you probably you better figure on at least two years worth of transplant shock. Oh, and wow. that's just And basically that just means the tree – suffers a lot of stress and then rebounds and gets back to about the same health it was when you first stuck it in the ground. Okay. That's what transplant shock is. Um, and, you know, but if you have the ability to, if you have a water tank out there that, you know, you can put on a wagon or something and when it really gets hot and dry in July and August, you can provide some supplemental water to them or, you know, or they're close enough somewhere to a house or building where you can water them with a hose. It's, those things obviously are going to buy you a year or two worth of growth. And they're worth doing if you can, but if you can't, you know, it's just uh, you need to you need to prepare for the worst when you're establishing the tree like that, which is why we say, you know, ounce of ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. Uh, so spending the money up front to protect them, it, because a lot of times those wildlife orchards, once you stick them in the ground, you're basically going to turn your back on them. You're not going to look at them again <laughs> until they're dropping fruit, right? Yep. So, um, you know, we're all guilty of that. So, Coming back and finding a, a mouse or a rabbit chewed on them. Yeah, 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 that's a bad deal. And, and so the, the the last way that we protect them is uh, we, we typically would use, like, uh, aluminum window screen, like replacement window screen. You can wrap around the trunk of them and then use just your office stapler and staple that stuff together, and that'll keep the rabbits and mice from debarking it, girdling your trees in the winter. Good advice. Yeah, you can also paint them with like you know white latex paint on the trunk, and your you know the trunk will still expand and the paint will stretch or crack and it won't hurt it. But uh, mice don't seem to like chewing on that quite as much. But there's there's a few different tricks you can use. But if you do something, you know you're gonna spend pennies to do that type of protection measure compared to what it costs to replace one of those trees or the heartache, you know, after you've been babying one of them or, or a couple of them for like five, six years, and they're just starting to fruit, and all of a sudden something attacks them, their their toes. So, for sure. Um, no, th- but thanks love, for that. We that love was, orchards. Yeah, that was some awesome uh, advice. I have a bunch of notes I just, just written down on that. Um, now, right prior to the orchard discussion, you mentioned edge and prairie grass establishment. Uh, yeah. Edge feathering, we've talked about that. Just a little bit on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mind diving into those subjects? Yes, for sure. Um, edge feathering is is oftentimes one of the very first practices that we'll do, or at least a practice that we'll do in year one when we're starting management on a property. And the reason for that is twofold. Um, one of them is deer. We think of big deer, uh, big timber equals big deer. Have you ever heard somebody say that? 
you know, we we have. We hear it a lot. And, like, guys will say, oh, i got some big timber out here. You know, I know we got big deer out here and that sort of thing. And it's like deer are not big timber animals. Deer are edge species. Um, everything, you know, from fawning to uh, bedding, it, everything that they need to survive is typically not found in your big, fully mature timber. It's found not, it's not found in, you know, those closed canopies. It's all found in that 100-foot belt that is the edge of timber where timber meets your open field-type habitat, yes, whether that's, you know, tillable field or prairie grass or whatever. Um, that's where all your broadleaf weeds or broadleaf forbs, your plants, uh, your base of stuff is growing the thickest, and that's where you end up with your, native, your belt of native shrubs, and it's that kind of transition from prairie habitat to tall, mature, hardwood timber. That's where everything a deer really needs. That's where it's at. So um, so the first thing we typically do is go in there and, and manage that edge and do a practice called edge feathering. You know, and basically, if the timber, if your average mature tree in this body of timber is 60 foot tall, we're going to go somewhere close to 60 feet in to the edge of the timber with the work that we do. So we create kind of a stair step. You know, if you imagine the transition, a lot of times what, what we see is what we call hard edge. You'll see fully mature timber that runs right out to the edge of the tillable field, and then it just you rocks off. Correct. So you got you're just looking straight at a wall of tall trees, and then open field out in front of it with no transition. And what we're trying to do is create that natural effect um, where you know if that field that's now in corn or beans or something, let's say 200 250 years ago, that was tall prairie grass. When that grass would burn. That fire was super hot, and it would rush towards the timber, and, and it wouldn't just, like, smack the wall of the timber and just poof, it goes out. It would lose steam as it got close into the timber where there was a lot more shade, there was more moisture. The fire would creep its way into the trees, and as it did that, you know, it, it would girdle or top-kill a lot of the softwood uh, species of trees and even some of the immature hardwood trees, and then it would kind of hit the restart button in that that edge, that belt of cover, before it got in too deep in the timber where it was full shade and lots of soil moisture and not enough fuel for it to burn, the fire would go out. So that fire, uh, you know, naturally occurring fire way back when would have been what created that edge that the wildlife just love. Very cool. And so that's what we try to do basically with that practice is like replicate those conditions by going in and selectively thinning, felling some of the more mature trees, cutting out the undesirable trees, letting in a lot of sunlight, and kind of promoting those species, you know, our dogwoods and uh, American plum and blackberry, um, mulberry, and, and redbud, and so on. And so, you know, until you get from, like, your, your shortest shrubs all the way up to your mid, mid-story mid trees and then get into your softwood species that kind of get up and actually compete with your big, fully mature hardwoods. So the reason that we do that first is because, one, it's very visual. It's our landowners see it and they realize immediate, uh, immediately that we've done a considerable amount of work on the property. It's low hanging fruit. You know, if you're in the management business, you want to do things that are actionable that, uh, that your customer, your client is going to look at and be like, wow, you know, you guys yeah. really did a lot of work. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Guilty is charged. That's one reason that we like doing it. But the other reason is we can use that technique to funnel deer traffic very effectively. And so there might be this field edge where there's 10 trails where the deer, you know, will walk in it or driving around the farm with the landowner, and they're like, yep, here's a trail that come out right here every season. I just always see deer coming out here. And then another 7,500 yards down there, here's another trail. They come out here, and they hit this field. 
And, if, you know, so they don't know which trail to put a, a tree stand on. They know that the deer want to come through this field or get to this field or where they leave some standing beans or whatever. But, you know, it's a crapshoot to them, whether they're on the right trail or whatever. So when we edge feather, we selectively fell a lot of trees parallel to the field edge. And we're basically creating a blockade where deer can utilize that edge and they benefit from it. And they browse and they feed in it and they can hide fawns in it and all that stuff, creating lots of turkey nesting. Everything that's good for wildlife, we achieve by doing that, but we also create basically a living wall of brush. And then we, we strategically leave openings, punch in openings to that in places that we want to be either really high traffic or that we can get close to ingress, egress for a good stand or a blind location. And so we know when we do that kind of work that that first season, the first year that those guys hunt it, they're going to like just be blown away by the number of deer that come right out the opening that we created, you know, because deer are lazy critters by nature, and they will always take the path of least resistance as long as they can do it without sacrificing security. So, okay, so real you, quick, because my, my head is spinning right now. I've got all kinds of ideas going on on how I'm going to implement this <laughs> on my place. Um, you said you lay them parallel to the field, right? So you're, you're making yeah. a wall. Mm-hmm. And how far into the woods would you do this? It, it depends on the height of the, the, height of the I mean, tree. Yeah, yeah. If your average height of the trees in your your timber, the mature trees, is like thirty or forty feet, then you really only probably need to go thirty or forty feet in. Okay. If it's you know seventy five or hundred feet, then we might go a little bit further. But um, that's really just to create the stair step effect, so that when you're standing in the edge and you're looking out to your left is the open field and to the right is the big timber and you're looking straight down the line, you're going to see a gradual kind of 45-degree angle, if you will, of okay. growth, you know, from like the the lowest ground level forbs into your blackberries and your, your three to five-foot high shrubs and then your, you know, five to 12-foot tall soft mass trees, your mulberries and all that kind of stuff and, and so on. So that's really what we're trying to, you know, there's no – strategic reason aside from that as to how far in to go into the timber. Okay. But and it's more I'm, about – Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when you're trying to create the living wall, uh, what we look more for is just the trees that we're going to selectively fell are the low-quality trees that we don't want. Yep. You know, So if that, that might be honey locusts. It might be hedge. It might be uh, some of the bigger hackberries. You know, it's going to be uh, a lot of those trees that maybe they were valuable to wildlife at one point in their life cycle, but they're fully mature now, and they're just not really doing anything good for us. So we're going to knock that thing down, try to sell it parallel to the field edge. Or a lot of times, you know, with big mature trees, they get all tangled up, and they don't want to fall like that. So sometimes we even just drop them straight out into the field edge. But we have equipment to deal with it at that point, you know. Move it back. So, yeah, yep, okay. yep. We'll grab it with a machine with a grapple and then shove it back in there where we want it to create the blocking. So. Okay, and then if I'm tracking correctly, you may cut in a couple of gaps, maybe on the north end and the south end, depending on what type of wind and tree stand position you may be hunting uh, that fall. Yeah. You know, yeah, and so you're right. I mean, yeah, we definitely consider uh, wind direction, that sort of thing, for – we like to give as many stand setups as we can for different wind directions. So, yeah, I mean, when you're looking at where the destination is, if it's a food plot or wherever, wherever you think the deer are going to be trying to come from this body of timber and out into this field for whatever reason, 
or cross a saddle or something, you know, mm-hmm. a pinch where a field is really wide in most spots, but it kind of gets tight right here on this ridge or something. So we create blocking on both sides of the field all the way along the edge and then leave an opening on that natural pinch. And deer are crossing there anyway. Right. All we're doing is eliminating a lot of their other options. So instead of, you know, half of the deer using this one trail and the other half using 10 other trails, we shut down those 10 other trails. So we make pretty much every deer come through this one gauntlet. And that, that also helps us a lot with trail camera monitoring. Um, I don't know about where you guys are. I don't know the regs, but in Illinois, we can't use any kind of mineral or bait. Um, so, which I don't mind at all, frankly, but uh, it does make a real challenge for us to get, you know, we can't do a real trail camera survey. It's difficult for us to make sure that we're getting images of all the deer that move through or on a piece of property. Right. So by convincing traffic in those kind of ways, you get a lot higher percentage of the deer that are moving through the property. You're not going to miss many of them. No, that's awesome. I love it. I think I, uh, I think I'm good. Perfect. Now, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's going to not be good when I try to implement it, but I mean, I, I have it, it makes sense yeah. in my head. So I, uh, I have a narrow area where I have about eight acres of timber that kind of pinches down into maybe a three acre wide area heading towards mm-hmm. destination food. And if I could just block off the middle part, leave an opening on the north and the south ends for uh, those different types of prevailing winds, it would give the deer, like you said, less other choices, less options on where to go. So yeah. it really yep. uh, really hits home there. Awesome, man. Um, now the prairie grass establishment, you guys do a lot with prairie grass, and you said even like a three-year plan to get this stuff going. Um, yeah. Is that the same it, as CRP, or is that different? Well, okay, so CRP is, uh, you know, Conservation Reserve Program, and there should be another enrollment coming up on that. So um, guys that have tillable land that they want to still be able to produce some revenue out of or need that money, um, you know, coming in off their property, it, it's an extremely great – it's a great program uh, with a lot of good benefits. But we have a lot of our clients that, that have CRP ground, and then some of them it's like, well, you know, either they're not eligible for CRP or they just want to uh, put in that type of habitat without being involved in a government program. Um, so, I mean, the same thing. A lot, there's a bunch of different practices is what they call them in CRP. Some of them might be native shrubs. Some of them are cool season grasses. But the most, one of the most, well, let's say two of the most popular, I think, are – uh, CP42 and CP2. CP2 is uh, tall native warm season grass. Well, it's just native warm season grasses, and you can have a tall or short grass mix. But uh, anyway, so a lot of the fields that we manage that are in native warm season grasses, yeah, they are enrolled in CRP. But, um, you know, it, the the end of the day, really what's important is what type of habitat are you growing in it. Um, some, not all CRP is created equally, I'll say that much. So it's uh, your native warm season grasses play a really critical role um, with wildlife management, and especially with deer and quail and even uh, turkey and, of course, pheasants. But um, the, the role that that is is that you, if you're managing your whole herd, you really have to account for good quality fawning cover. And a lot of good hunting properties just don't have good fawning cover. And guys are like, well, I don't really care about that. They can have their baby somewhere else. All I care about is 
holding the big mature deer, and it's like you're you're missing the point. <laughs> you you can't have big mature deer if you don't first recruit fawns. You have to you have to raise a herd of deer to be able to hunt mature deer. So, you know, I mean, if I only own 15 or 20 or 40 acres or something, yeah, you have to realize what you have to look beyond your property if that's right. the case. If you if you're micromanaging and you're only because you're only touching one piece of the puzzle. So you have to figure out what does your whole area lack that you can add and, you know, that will benefit the whole herd and will make your property super attractive to deer at at least some time of the year and hopefully the time of year that you want it to be. But uh, if you have any significant amount of acreage, I'm going to say 80 plus in most of the Midwest or 160 maybe if you're in big wood sections or something, you need to be looking at more than just what do my big bucks need? You need to be looking at what your herd needs, and that's fawning cover. And that, that's oftentimes the biggest limiting factor for why people don't see more deer is because there are only so many good pockets for fawns to, to be dropped and reared in, and coyotes are, the population of coyotes are uh, growing pretty much everywhere throughout the United States. So you're not the only predator in the woods, you know, and you have to – you have to recruit and protect those young deer if you're ever going to have big mature deer to hunt. Yeah. So, you know, we, we like using native warm season grasses, but the other role that they play is um, insulation. That's a lot of times what we'll refer to it as, and especially if it's one of those like CRP buffers where you've got a big crop field or whatever and a lot of timber, but somebody plants uh, like a 40 or a 60 or 90 foot wide belt of native grasses right along the edge of the timber. What that does is create like an insulative barrier between all of the human activity out there in the field and where the deer are bedding inside the timber. You know, if you've ever gone on a property that didn't have something like that and it had a hard edge, you know, had open field and timber, and you buzz past the timber on a four-wheel or something, every deer that's in that body of timber comes out of its skin and runs off onto the neighbor's property. And it's, it's stress, you know. So having that belt of insulation, that those warm season grasses, the deer know. They still hear the four-wheeler. They still hear people out there talking. Or they know there's people out there. But they also know that they have a screen, a visual screen between them and you so that you can't see them. They're aware that you're there, and they'll just stuck, they'll tuck in, and they'll just lay tight until they hear you crashing through that tall grasses. And then, okay, and then they've got time. They need to get up and move. But any – instance, you know, people are like, well, I guess that's good. You know, I don't want to be blowing deer out of my property. It, it allows you stealthier ingress, egress. But the biggest thing that it does for herd health is that it reduces stress. You know, it, it, think about it in the middle of the night. You know, every time those deer are bedded in the timber and coyotes light up and start howling out there in that open field, deer come unglued and they jump up and they run and to put distance between them and those coyotes. But when you have that thick edge feathering barrier or if you have that strip of warm season grasses, they know the coyote's there, but they know to get to them, it's got to come through there, and it's going to make plenty of noise and alert them, and they're going to have time to get up and move if they need to. But every time that they don't have to get up and raise their heart rate and take off running, they've saved calories. True. And, you know, that saves – yeah. So, Chase, you mentioned the human activity. Uh, what else can we do as far as uh, land improvements for, like, building roads, creek crossings? you consider how it's laid out for the wildlife when it comes to those things also, or how do you approach that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, especially on smaller properties, your access is extremely important. And a lot of times what we will do is 
smaller tracks, we're going to look at uh, ways to improve access that help us get around the perimeter of the property. Like, take my home property, for instance. You know, our piece here where I'm sitting now is only 55 acres. Um, and we have a trail that runs, we got a big block of timber, a little over 40 acres. And then it's prairie grasses kind of around that and out in front of it. But we have a trail that we've cut in that goes all the way east to west along the far north edge of the property. It's like a long rectangle, you know, our property is. And then we've created another trail we've cleared that goes all the way in along the south side of the property, all the way to the southwest corner. So anytime we have a northerly wind, I can use that south access trail and walk in quietly along there and hunt the edge of my timber on the south edge with my scent blowing out into a dead zone, you know, out into open tillable field. And same thing, if we have any kind of southerly wind, I use the north trail. Same thing. So that alone has reduced our footprint on the property by so much. I can't even I can't even express how much that has changed things because deer that are bedded in our property, you know, most of the time we can get in and out of a hunt without those deer ever knowing that they were being hunted. And that's huge. Because we don't hunt any less than we ever did, but as far as the deer know, we're hardly hunting at all. So we approach those types of land improvements um, with that strategy in mind on all the properties, but especially smaller pieces. Uh, it's so important. And, and a lot of times, you know, when we're looking at doing those uh, trails or improving access to remote parts of the farm where somebody didn't have access before, a lot of times it's because we need the trail to be able to get equipment back there just to do the TSI work or to, uh, you know, to selectively cut and manage timber to be able to log. you got to have trail access. you got to have creek crossings. you got to be able to get back to those places. Otherwise, they just get kind of ignored and neglected, and they don't develop the type of habitat that you'd want, and you can't capture the revenue from marketable timber. So... You're losing value in a lot of respects if you don't uh, put in those types of land improvements that get you access throughout the farm. So, yeah, you know, I mean, we're we're always putting in uh, creek crossings and some of sometimes excavated crossings. Sometimes it's just you know dropping in some big tubes, you know, that are in the smaller drainage ditches and stuff, so you can drive your UTV back there with your chainsaws and stuff to do work. Um, but they, all of those trails are used during the hunting season, or if they run through, sometimes we'll have a trail like that that goes through the heart of a sanctuary. And not very often, because not very many guys have the discipline it takes to not use that trail, but we do have some that go through the middle of a sanctuary, and the only time it gets used is if we're logging or if we're going in there in February or something to do TSI work, selectively fell some trees. Uh, or if we need to get in there to track or haul out a deer that's been killed. So those trails are, I mean, they're extremely important for those reasons. But, you know, I'd say more often than not, we try not to create trails like that because most hunters were lazy critters, and we know, hey, the deer are always in there. Well, yeah, they're in there. It's a sanctuary, you know. <laughs> but if you create a trail, it's very inviting, and it, it's like, well, deer are always on that trail, so I just want to hang a stand right on that trail. So next thing you know, you got you know, somebody that's on your property is hunting in the middle of your sanctuary. But. Now, a quick question on that before we move on. How do you keep deer off of your perimeter access trails? Or, I mean, maybe no, you can't, we, but I, no, I have no, that same you're, type you're of situation you're talking about. Yeah, we, we create those access trails usually on the exterior of the uh, edge feathering. Okay. So there's a lot of blocking that goes involved between the heart of the timber 
and the trail. And they will. Mm-hmm. They will use that trail a lot, especially during the growing season, May, June, July. They use that trail because there's usually crops in the field that are tall enough that it hides them from the exterior of the farm. And then there's uh, lots and lots of valuable browse. I mean, blackberry is a super plant. Pokeweed is a super plant. Those are phenomenal, phenomenal, highly nutritious plants that are good for does when they're nursing. Um, they're good for bucks when they're trying to, you know, regrain, regain body weight and mass and, and bone and all that stuff from, you know, post-rut and being worn down, whatever. So those plants are highly attractive, and they're growing right there along the edge of your timber. So they're going to use those exterior, those perimeter uh, access roads during that time of the year, and that's fine. You know, I mean, hang trail cameras on them, use them. But when it comes time to uh, hunt, a lot of times we don't see deer using those nearly as much, especially not during the daylight for just those same reasons. None of that forage on the exterior is really as available. It's all dried up at that point. Most of the food is still on the inside of the timber where there's more moisture. Uh, the crops have been picked, so if they're walking that perimeter trail that's on the outside of that, uh, you know, field edge, the uh, edge-feathered barrier, if, then they're exposed to the open field, and they don't like being exposed to the open field. So um, we find that they usually will, you know, stick to the inside of the field edge until after dark. And a lot of time, if you run into deer on that, a lot of time I'll tell you what happens is when, like, you hunted all evening and it got dark on you, and then you got down and you're hiking out on that trail, and you run into a deer head-on with your flashlight. Because after dark, yeah, they're going to come out and they're going to start walking those trails. And gotcha. So, yep. you know, there's not much you can do about it. I'd much rather run into a deer on one of those trails than run into it in the middle of the timber someplace. Because it, it kind of just reinforces what the deer already knew, that that perimeter trail is not all that safe. You know, it's the interiors where they're safe. So Perfect. You know, it makes me feel better about it, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <I laughs> At the very it. least, right? Yeah. It just sure. makes us feel better about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm always worried about these Michigan bucks smelling me after I'm gone, and I'm sure they do, but... They do. But if they smell you on the exterior trail, like I said, that's that's not necessarily, you know, that's not an end-all. Right. It, it's just you'd much rather have them smell you there than smell you walking through the middle of the timber or someplace that, you know, you really probably should try to be out of. Very true. Very true. Um, now, we have a couple more things I wanted to cover. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, do you want to... Mm-hmm. Keep rolling, or how you doing? I know you have some little kids oh, you can take care of as well. So I, I'm good for right now. I just, you know, I don't want to get it so long that people get tired of listening to my voice. But no, you, yeah. hey, it sounds <laughs> it sounds really good. Um, now number five, we're talking about some hinge cutting and better bedding habitat. Now we've talked about hinge cutting a few times on here. Um, some guys are for it, some guys are against it. What I mm-hmm. what I've gathered from multiple discussions is. Uh, too much of it can block, and and deer don't like being blocked or locked in. So I, we understand that. Um, how do you use mm-hmm. it where you're at? Because I'm sure it sure it matters differently to you in Illinois than it would to Brian in uh, you know Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Yep. See, because we have such a mix of uh, habitat, we're not in big timber country. You know, we're not in a place where where you have square mile after square mile of lots and lots of big timber. If I did, I would probably use hinge cutting a lot differently than, than how we do here. Um, most of the time where we will do some hinge cutting is, let's say, in a stand of timber that generally has pretty good quality and we're not going to kill a high percentage of the trees that are in that stand. I mean, we have some stands where 
we're going to probably remove selectively cut or uh, eliminate 60 plus percent of the trees that are in that stand. So we're going to open up a lot of canopy and let in a ton of sunlight. And it's going to get thick on its own just with the regeneration. So if we're going to fill that much of the canopy and let in that much sunlight and have this explosion of thick growth anyway, you don't probably want to do a lot of hinge cutting and create a jungle that's so impenetrable that deer aren't going to want to get in there and use it much. So um, if we have a good stand of timber and we're only going to probably cut or selectively fell 10% or 15 maybe percent of the stand, um, you know, if it's generally it's a, it's a mix of oak and hickory and some cherry and a little bit of walnut, a handful of maples and hackberries, and we want to remove some of those maple and hackberry, those trees, you know, we'll find ridges or plateaus and in areas where we know the deer are probably going to want to bed, but it's just really naked in there because it's, um, you know, full canopy, lots of shade, not much understory. And those are the trees that we'll probably hinge cut because, you know, we need to let in the sunlight, but we also want to create some immediate structure to compensate for how open it is in there. Um, so we use it, but it's very, we're very uh, site-specific, you know. Okay. It's it's not the magic bullet. It's not, um, if you have really open, uh, let's say, park-like timber and you have uh, some some component of it that is low quality, and when I say low quality, I mean, Every tree we approach, we give two criteria. One, is it ever going to make a marketable log of value? And two, is it now or is it at some point in the future going to provide value for wildlife? And if the answer is no to both of those questions, then it's probably going to get the ax. Because (laughs) it's, you know, you paid for the land, you pay for the taxes, it's expensive real estate. And as a manager, you get to decide which of those trees you allow to survive and thrive and which ones you're just occupying an expensive footprint and if you kill it odds are odds are good that it's going to be replaced with something better than what was there before you know regardless of whether you just kill it and walk away forever and let nature run its course or if you kill it and you come in and you plant something but um, anyway so yeah we do use singe cutting but we use it you know in pockets usually um, in areas that topographically we know it's going to be a really desirable bedding area. It just needs the structure and, you know, it has the right trees there, then, yeah, we'll hinge cut some stuff. But um, but we don't do it indiscriminately or don't just, you know, do it everywhere because we think every hunting property is going to be better with a bunch of hinge cuts. Right. Okay. And then other sort of bedding techniques. Um, I know the prairie grass is probably one of them. Uh, are there any other that we haven't touched on? You know, it, it depends a lot on the, the ecotype. Um, it, like, what do we always look for if we go do a consultation? That's when we spend most of the time on properties that we're really kind of unfamiliar with. First thing we'll do before we go into a consultation is we would, like, study Google Earth and really look at the property from 10,000 feet, 25,000 feet, and uh, look for missing components. Like, are there any pine stands, any conifers anywhere? And conifers are not necessary in our area, uh, central, west central Illinois, for a lot of the days out of the year. But there are usually a handful of days every year when they come in extremely valuable. Um, You know, if you get ice, you get high winds with really cold temperatures, when you get, you know, some of these really inclement conditions, deer, turkey, quail, other wildlife all flock to those stands of conifers. They're basically... uh, rescue or survival cover 
and and they can save a lot of calories. They can save a lot of animals' lives. So it's a good component to have. It does have value for bedding. Um, if you don't have it, it's something that you can consider adding. If you don't see it anywhere in your landscape, there's going to be a certain time of the year when you're going to hold deer that nobody else will hold. Um, but what we generally like to do, for especially for buck bedding, finding some um, pockets. I would that's generally the term that we use to refer to it. You know, I'm not that guy, and I'm not going to name names or say anything bad about anybody else. But you guys know um, there are certain uh, professionals out there that like to create beds by tying stuff down or you know raking stuff out or doing some kind of extreme things to make deer bed in a very specific spot. And I frankly, it just I don't care if if the deer beds in this spot or 20 or 30 feet over there or 100 feet that direction. I'm going to create basically a five or six acre area where it's attractive for deer to bed. They will choose their own bed. I'm not killing it in their bed. I'm not trying to put a camera on the bed, so I don't care where they make the bed. I'm just going to make this area very conducive with just the right ecotype. So we create pockets like that. And one type of cover that we really like in a bedding pocket, if you have a sheltered hillside, um, and you have any kind of, let's say, a stand of eastern red cedars on it. Um, eastern red cedars are great for deer, but they kind of tend to dominate, and they form really, they form a thicket, and then it becomes too shaded, too dark, very uninviting. So we go through and selectively thin a lot of those out so that they're maybe uh, 40 or 50 foot spacing, and smaller cedars, once they mature too much, we'll cut them out, and we'll kind of let it start over with younger the scattered cedars mixed in with frost-seeded, tall native grasses, switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stems. That stuff makes phenomenal bedding cover. Bucks love bedding and that type of stuff. Nice. And, oh, yeah, Chase, so, Chase yeah. do you see any problems with the cedar in your orchards with the apple trees? Yeah, cedar yeah, apple good, rust. Good point. Yep, cedar apple rust. It's a fungus that you'll get on the apples. Generally doesn't really hurt the trees in, in our experience. And most of the time we're... We're using B118 rootstock. Um, we're using highly disease-resistant varieties, and a lot of times we're using heritage varieties of apples or crab apples, things like that. So they're they're not like your Fuji and your Honeycrisp and your the apples that you, most of the time that you're going to buy at the store that are big and really shiny and pretty. Those are tasty apples to us, and they're marketable because they're beautiful, right? But most of the time, wildlife apples are not all that pretty to begin with. But a cedar apple rust basically forms like blemishes all over the skin of the apple and it'll stunt the growth of the apple some and you you know it's they're not probably going to be you're not going to produce quite the tonnage out of trees that have cedar apple rust as you would if they were cedar apple rust free but with that said like it's also you would have to remove pretty much every single cedar tree within at least a half a mile of your orchard to highly reduce the chance of you not having cedar apple rust so if, you're, if your property is littered up with eastern red cedars, then you need to just probably put that notion out of your head to begin with and say, it is what it is. I'm probably going to have blemishes on my apples, and that's okay. <laughs> now, now, could you spray for yeah. that in the springtime? Yeah, you, you can spray. Um, you know, there's, there's some good articles out there on it. A lot of orchard guys, that their livelihood depends on growing quality apples. So really, right. you know, they've got it figured out. So you can, you can Google that up and figure out exactly what to spray and at what time to help reduce not just cedar apple rust, but all funguses and mildews and molds and things like that that can hurt your apples. But um, honestly, 
we don't typically worry about it too much. I, on our home property here, we have very, very few eastern cedars. I mean, and I've removed most of them. And it's just um, because I can. Because, I mean, literally, we found probably fewer than 10 cedar trees on the whole farm in the time that we've owned it, and there's not really any in the surrounding area. Um, so, you know, we we try to do that where we can, where it makes sense. And you just you just have to assess the situation. You can figure out pretty quickly if it's if that's something that's going to make sense to you or not, and uh, then what you're willing to do about it. If not, a great question. Yeah, we don't have it. We don't have any uh, cedar in Ohio in the northeast part around me. And I've I've always heard that it makes great bedding, and I've seen it out west. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'd like to, I'd like to plant some on my farm, but then you hear about the cedar apple rust, and I don't want to. <laughs> if I were starting my from scratch. And trying to plant a conifer that would do as well, um, but would not give me the cedar apple rust problems, I would be planting Norway spruce. And yeah, that's what I've been doing. That's good to hear. Yep. They, they'll grow fast. They'll produce the same quality or better of cover. Um, they're not native, you know, obviously, but, uh, but, it's, but it's a really, really good tree to use for thermal cover, security cover, uh, and they're hardy. And deer don't usually chew them up as bad as they do, like, white pines. White pines are Excellent. good too, but deer will absolutely annihilate them. So, you know, unless you're in an yeah. area that's heavily covered with white pines, they kind of stick out like a sore thumb, and the deer just rub them and chew them up. So, now Chase, we've covered a ton of good stuff. I just have a couple things left. You told me that you like to film your hunts. Now, you said you also. Um, appear on the show called The Management Advantage, which I've heard of before. Um, tell us a little bit about that and and what you do sure. with, with filming your hunts and what you have going on this fall. Excited to hear about, you know, deer season for Chase. Yeah, well, um, so, yeah, I've been involved with The Management Advantage for a few years. Um, I, I don't even know. I've lost track. Maybe five years or so, um, six, who knows. And so The Management Advantage, you know, was – the kind of has the distinction of being uh, the longest running television series. And it was on the outdoor channel for like 13 years. I think that uh, longest running uh, habitat management focused television show ever. And, and then, you know, five or six years ago or whenever it was, I got involved is right when they went to fully uh, web based and produce a web show. And it got to where they could do it a lot more frequently. They could do shorter episodes, you know, and they're short, they're snappy. They're fun to watch, and that's kind of how I got hooked on it, you know, and was like uh, ran into Casey Shootman at a QDMA national convention quite a few years ago, and, you know, we got to be buddies pretty fast and, you know, started talking about Habitat projects, and next thing you know, he's like, I'd love to come up and, and film with you and, and you know, and, and shoot an episode of at your place. I was like, all right, cool. So we did it, you know, and, and we became pretty good buddies, and that episode turned into just me joining the team and just, doing that type of project with them several times a year and filming it and, and uh, producing content for the show. So the management advantage is just um, one other tool that we use to help educate people and just kind of share some information and just, you know, we're always learning. Like some people would say, oh, you know, it's, it's great, you know, that you, you're an expert in this area. That it, it, I, I remind people <laughs> that I, I know a lot about a very little and, so, it, you know, my knowledge is not as vast as it might seem. <laughs> I get long-winded on the subjects that I, I really get excited about or know a lot about, but I'm always learning something. And that's the other cool part about TMA 
is anytime I get together with Casey or Eric Long, uh, Drumming Long Wildlife Management, is another really good friend of mine. Um, any of these other guys, you know, Ross Vogel, um, some of these, you know, Tom James, these other guys who are in the Midwest who I've really got to spend most of the time with, um, they are all experts and just wealth of knowledge, and they all kind of have their own specialty and the types of things that they like to do in habitat management. So it's a blessing, honestly, to get to spend time around them and to uh, be able to contribute something, really. But uh, when we get together, when we film our hunts, let's say in the fall, all of us are trying to do that. We're trying to run a camera as often as we can, not because we want to be famous. It's got nothing to do with that. I, honestly, I'm still not comfortable in front of the camera. I don't, I don't <laughs> usually enjoy it. But we do it, and we kind of we try to force ourselves to do it because – uh, because we know that Casey's kind of counting on us, honestly, you know. I mean, he produces a show, and the hunts there, honestly, that's what makes it exciting. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, the running the camera, I, I try to keep it fun, and my kids like it, you know. They, they enjoy it. A lot of times they'll be in the episodes because anytime I'm running the camera, you know, I usually have them out there with me doing habitat. So it's like when I'm really busting butt and making a habitat project, I'm probably working too hard, too fast to really stop and film it and talk about it. And that's, right. the, that's the hardest part. It's like, I don't want to say that the episodes are staged because it's not, but a lot of times if you really see a great episode where we got a lot of work accomplished is because Casey came up to film it with me while I'm doing the work <laughs> or because I went down there to film it while he was doing the work because it's very hard to do right. both at the same time by yourself. So Absolutely. if I'm filming something here on our property or another property here that I hunt and manage and stuff, uh, it, it's, you know, a lot of times I got my kids out running in front of me and they're turning the crank on the cedar or they're, you know, we're, it, it, it's a lot of what I really like to do with it, produce the content that educates and helps people, uh, but still is fun to watch is I will video me because I don't like looking at the camera and telling people, you know, this is what you need to be doing. This is how I build habitat. This is the way to do it. I like to teach my kids. I'm going to do that anyway. So if I can run the camera and talk to them about what I'm doing and why and teach them, people are going to passively learn. As I'm teaching my kids, they get to see what it is I'm teaching and how I did it. And and I feel like uh, if I have a calling at all, it's one, to to be a great steward to God's creation. And I'm sorry, I'm going to get biblical on you for just a second. Uh, I can't have a plat- platform without doing that. And it's uh, – but, you know, my my real calling, I think, is to teach my kids to do that, you know, and to, to instill that kind of uh, conservation and land ethic in them and for them, hopefully, to carry that on to the next generation. So, um, you know, we're very blessed to be able to do what we do. Um, absolutely love getting to manage wildlife habitat. I love helping other people figure out how to make the most out of their property. And, you know, I... I just love, love, love that we live in a country where we can do that and we can teach our kids to do it and enjoy God's creation that way. Amen, sir. Well said. Preach it, buddy. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. You're not going to uh, offend Brian or I with that type of conversation, my friend. Um, uh, no, sir. That was uh, very well said. I think it's a great place to wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on. Now, I'd like you to just say one more thing. If anybody wants to reach out and get a hold of you, how can they do that? Where can they find you? I uh, appreciate it. Um, so we can, they can find us and find out more about us on our website, which is dogwoodoutdoors.com. 
Or, of course, we're on Facebook, again, Dogwood Outdoors, or Dogwood Land Management on Facebook. And uh, if they find us and, and see anything that we put out on there in the blog or on Facebook or whatever, uh, invite them to reach out to us with questions or whatever. We love talking that stuff. And if I can help you, I will. And if you're interested in talking more about what we do or having us out, we'd love to visit with you on the phone. So you can reach us through the website. Great. Well, Chase, thanks so much again for coming on. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, we just want to—we really appreciate your time, and just want to thank you. So, thanks again. Wow, and that was episode 20. I'm always surprised at how much I continue to learn on these episodes, Brian. I mean, Chase was a great guest. Um, I, I need to thank Sam, my buddy Sam, for suggesting to get him on. So, thank you, Sam. Um, Chase was just an awesome guest. What do you think, Brian? It's outstanding. I, I think it's nice to speak to these guys that do habitat management on some different properties. Uh, they're not just looking at the same dirt like we are with our places or maybe helping a friend out. They might see, you know, 20, 30, 40 properties in a year, and they could take everything that they learned from individual properties and come on the podcast and give us all kind of good information like this. They've, you know, learned from experience and did all the trial and errors and our, us and our listeners get the benefit from it. Amen, buddy. Yeah, we got some exciting stuff coming out with the Habitat Podcast now. Uh, we're on Instagram, as a lot of you know, and you found us there. If you haven't already, check us out at Habitat Podcast on Instagram. Also, we're uh, in the works of getting a YouTube channel up. So we'll be posting some videos on there and doing some exciting things over there. So we'll let you know when that gets launched. Just keep following us on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, we'll let you know when that drops. Yes, sir. And if you want to listen to these episodes, there's 20 of them now, you can go to habitatpodcast.com. You can also hit iTunes, Podbean, the Stitcher app, iHeartRadio, we're slowly becoming uh, popular across all of them, so you'll be able to find us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I uh, just want to thank all of our listeners for the great reviews they've been giving us. Um, could always use some more. We're going to give away decals to whomever leaves us a good review. And you know what? We're here and having a great time because of you guys. So thank you so much. Stay tuned. There's more to come, and we're just going to keep going as we're trying to become better habitat managers. Thanks, guys, and enjoy your woods. <laughs>